If you are sexually active or you plan to be one day, or if you're raising a child who falls into that category, this episode is a must listen. Do you know that most sexually active people will have an STD at some point? And many have no symptoms. It's STD Awareness Week. So we're facing that uncomfortable topic of sexually transmitted diseases head on, bringing out the misconceptions, addressing the avoidance in talking about the truths, and learning the real dangers and how STDs can impact our lives. We want to ensure you have the tools and knowledge to prevent, detect, and treat STDs. That's in today's Unprivate Parts podcast. Welcome to Unprivate Parts, a podcast hosted by Women's Hospital. Join us as we pull back the proverbial curtain with honest discussions on women's health and the uncomfortable subjects we all want answers to. Welcome to the Unprivate Parts Podcast. I'm Melanie Bear, and we have so much to clear up today when it comes to sexually transmitted diseases, what you may think you know as a listener of this podcast, and the facts. So here to help with such a private and... I think it's safe to say embarrassing topic for many people are Drs. Rachel Gilbert and Dr. Jacqueline Glocklier. First of all, you guys are, are a fun group of doctors, mm-hmm. and I know you are approaching this conversation head on. You really believe in that transparency and the information, and I'm wondering if you talk about it not only in the offices, but do you talk about STDs and other unprivate matters uh, around your family and friends, and do you believe in that? 100%. We, even in our resident crew, I feel like it always, always comes up. We're harassing each other about these kinds of things. And I, to me, I'm with my family all the time and I'm the same person at work as I am there. So they get, they get all the unfiltered business from me at home too. Unfiltered with the unprivate parts. Uh, Dr. Gilbert, why are you so passionate about this topic? Yeah. So I think that there's a lot of misconceptions and a lot of stigmas um, surrounding STDs. And I think that the most important thing to know is that it can happen to anybody that's sexually active, right? We all, if we're sexually active, are at risk. So it's not that one person is at, um, you know, risk over the other that we can all, we know we're all equally, if can be affected by this potentially. That stigma. Yeah. yeah. Do you have anything to add to that, Dr. Locklear? Yeah. Like it's not something that we, it's just something our patients deal with. Like I'm sure many of your physicians that take care of you have maybe had an STD and of course they're not going to disclose that to you, but it's not, it's not like Dr. Gilbert said, it's not something that just affects um, a certain subset of people. It affects everyone and it's worth everyone just being open and talking about it. What do you think the stigma is? That you're promiscuous maybe? Possibly. You think that's what people feel? Yeah. Or just like embarrassment that you're like dirty or unclean. And I think a lot of women have that stigma that like they, it's just like an unknown space down there. It's not clean or it's, it smells funny or whatever. And there's a lot of just education you can do to just help women appreciate um, but they have. And you could even have one for years and not know. And then, so it, it really doesn't indicate anything about um, the type of person you are. And let's clear that up because this affects anyone mm-hmm. or can affect anyone who has ever, not just is sexually active, but has ever had sex, ever. Yes, even if it's just one person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so is there a, cle- a clear way? It sounds sort of easy to understand what a sexually transmitted disease is, but is there really a clear way to define, uh, Dr. Gilbert, what specifically an STD is? Because 
some don't have any symptoms, and then there's what you would call a sexually transmitted infection. So what's the difference with that too? Yeah, so really good question. Um, they're typically used interchangeably. So STI stands for sexually transmitted infection, and STD stands for sexually transmitted disease. So all STDs begin as STIs. They are all sexually acquired infections with either bacteria, a virus, a microbe um, during either oral sex, um, vaginal sex, anal sex. Um, that's how they're acquired. Now, some STIs will create symptoms and affect the body's normal function, and then that's a disease process. Um, whereas other STIs are completely asymptomatic or without symptoms, and that they are just infections. The World Health Organization says that more than 1 million sexually transmitted infections, the STIs, are acquired every day worldwide, and the majority of them are asymptomatic. And most, they're mostly in young people, which the organization defines as more than half in teens and early 20s, according, that's actually according to one CDC report. Mm -hmm. And I really want to focus on HPV. Dr. Locklear, I know that that is of particular interest to you and you do a lot of research on this. I know it's the most common in the United States. I find it, and I think a lot of other people find it quite confusing. Uh, what strikes me the most is that most people who have ever had sex ever mm -hmm. have had HPV at some point in their lives. Uh, more than 80% of sexually active men and women will be infected in their lifetime. That's according to the CDC, who says by age 50, at least four out of every five women will have been infected with HPV at one point in their lives. So that's what strikes me the most. I know you do a lot of research on this. What is it that strikes you the most about uh, the human papillomavirus? Yeah. So the biggest thing for me with HPV is kind of just educating women what kind of we screen for, why we screen for it and what, what we're concerned about. So with HPV, we're looking on your pap smear to see if you have it. So it's unlike other STDs, it's not really um, one that we treat with like a medicine or like an antibiotic. It's just something we kind of look for on your pap smear. And if you have it, we just watch you very, very closely. So it kind of sits in its own little hub of STDs that is one that people get concerned about because they're like, well, I have it. Well, what medicine can you give me? And what antibiotic do I need to treat? And does my partner need to be treated? And how I talk to women about it is your partner probably has it. Like you said, about 80% of people have been exposed to it and have HPV. So the chances are you're, whoever you're having sex with has it. And unfortunately, men just get a free pass and they just get to live with HPV. And most of the time, it doesn't cause them any trouble. But with women, it can lead to cervical cancer. So that's why we take it super, super seriously. And we screen with pap smears. So that's what we're doing with your pap smear every year is really trying to see, do you have HPV? Are you at risk for developing cervical cancer? And then the men just get to float by and do whatever they want. And most of the time, don't develop any infection, any symptoms, any cancer. Well, HPV does cause genital warts, doesn't it? Men can uh -huh. get genital exactly. warts. Exactly. So men or mm -hmm. women can. But, but it's only, is that, it, I think that's a different strain. Is that correct than the one that causes uh, uh, cervical cancer from HPV? Yes. So right? HPV, there's hundreds of like types of HPV. It's kind of like the flu vaccine. Like every year we get the flu vaccine because they think, the different strains of the strains of the flu make up the vaccine and kind of help us fight against it. HPV is very similar. There's a bunch of different strains and some do lead to warts and others lead to cancer. So technically, yes, men will can get warts from HPV and they can also get like penile cancer from HPV. So it's not to I'm being dramatic when I'm saying men get a free pass. But most of the time, um, it's really women that we're concerned about with HPV. And if you test positive yourself, it's not something your partner your male partner needs to go necessarily be tested for. And it's not really something we test men for directly usually. Um, but yes, it can lead, 
HPV can lead to warts anywhere in your body, not just genital warts, warts on your hands, warts anywhere is caused by HPV. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's do they all hurt? Kind of the, do they hurt? Do you always know it, it, that there's a problem? Warts don't necessarily always hurt. So herpes is usually the one that leads to like bumps down below that will hurt. Um, HPV, not so much. HPV is can cause warts and people will notice them and they'll feel them, but usually aren't super, super painful. Um, and that's pretty benign. Usually warts, warts don't lead to anything that can cause cancer, but the, there's certain strains of HPV, just a handful, but the serious ones that can lead to cervical cancer. And those are the ones we take seriously. So if you don't have warts, are there any other indications that you might have HPV other than the pap smear? So I'm saying yeah. someone noticing on their own that something is wrong and going to a doctor as a result. Unfortunately, no. HPV is a sneaky one. So you're like, it's kind of a spectrum. Like you probably won't notice anything. And then if you start bleeding and have like a lot of symptoms, like you probably already have a progressed form of like cervical dysplasia or abnormal cells in cancer. So most of the time you aren't going to know you have HPV, not at all. You won't have a discharge. You won't have pain. You won't have any bumps, nothing at all. You will not be able to see it with your naked eye. We as doctors can't see it with our naked eye. You can't look at a cervix and be like, this cervix looks like it has HPV. I can just tell. You can't tell. It just comes back on the pap smear. But if it, is it always shown on the pap smear? Yes. Like if you're going in to get your annual checkups mm -hmm. and you get your annual pap smear, it would you would, you would know at yes. least, at least at some point during that year, yes. it would show up a hundred percent. You're like, you're sometimes we don't always test women for HPV, just depending on their age, like certain very subsets of like young, young women. We don't always test for HPV. What do you mean test for HPV? Is that separate from the pap smear? Cause you see it in, is there a loaded test? question? Yeah. Oh, okay. like it. <laughs> um, so a pap smear, what we do, we test for two things on a pap smear. We kind of collect some cells from the outside of your cervix to look and see, do the cells themselves look abnormal? So we look under a microscope, do what's sitting on your cervix already look abnormal? And the second thing we do is test for the virus HPV. So it's a double whammy of a test. Um, so some pap smears, we just look at the cells, just look at kind of what's sitting there already. And other pap smears will also test for the HPV on top of it. Well, how do you decide? It's based on your age. So basically anyone over 30 definitely gets HPV testing and anyone between 25 and 30 that has um, abnormal cells, it will reflex to test their HPV. So basically if you're less than 25, like 21 to 25, we don't necessarily do HPV. Almost everyone else does. But Dr. Locklear, I just read those statistics mm. that most of the the patients who are affected by HPV are the younger kids. Why is that? Is that an insurance uh, a reason? Not necessarily insurance. So just most of the time, young people, most of the time, blanket term, not always, um, have more sexual partners, have higher risk for um, acquiring so HPV. So you just assume they have it. You don't necessarily assume they have it. The cool thing about HPV is your body normally clears it with its natural immune system. So we don't necessarily test for it because we assume that if you're less than 25, 90% of the time, your body's going to clear it on its own. And we don't need to go hunting down, taking biopsies and pieces of your cervix when you're so young and putting you at risk for complications in the future. So we just leave it alone. Make sure your actual cells of your cervix look fine. As long as they do, we let you ride along and live your life until you're 25. And then sometimes we start looking for HPV. But the cool thing about it is our immune system does a really, really good job about fighting against HPV. And so your body will clear it naturally most of the time when you're that young. See, but that's where the confusion comes in. Wouldn't you agree, Dr. Gilbert? Do you have oh, something yeah. to add to this? Like it's, it's because 
because, okay, so you're checking for the HPV with the 30 and older because it could cause cervical cancer. But if you're younger than 30, what I'm hearing is, uh, you know, most of the time you will have it at some point in your life and you are the more sexually active age group and your body will likely clear it on its own. But isn't it possible that it could still uh, cause cancer as well? Are you you confused by this too, Dr. Gilbert? Sure. That's a good point. And another interesting thing is that things like cervical cancer from HPV take years typically, years and years. So if you do have a case in which a young woman, you know, below the age of 25 starts to develop abnormal cells, then by the time she's 25 or 30, most likely you'll you'll start to catch that and you'll see that in okay, her Okay, so it just cytology. takes a while. To, yeah, mm-hmm. okay. That makes That's sense. Right. That makes sense. And then, um, Dr. Luckler, once you do catch an abnormal pap smear, then what are the best options moving forward at that point? The best thing you can do as a patient when you have an abnormal pap smear of any kind, one with HPV or one without, is just make sure you follow up with your doctor and follow their recommendations. Because every patient is different depending on your age, depending on what your prior pap smears were. And we all put it into like an algorithm to decide, do we just repeat your pap smear or do we need to take a little biopsy of your cervix? Um, So unfortunately, when you have HPV, if if something is abnormal, there's not, like I said, a medicine to treat it. We just have to remove the abnormal cells. That's the treatment. So we don't want to remove pieces of your cervix if we don't have to. Um, so sometimes we just repeat your pap smear and kind of see if, like I said, your body will clear it on its own. So that's the biggest thing as a patient, just kind of follow your doctor's recommendations and don't make sure you answer your phone and make that appointment when you need to come back so we can keep track of it. Cause like Dr. Gilbert said, as long as we keep you um, in close, close contact and close surveillance and we can follow you up, you're not going to develop cancer in like a year, six months, five years even. Um, a lot of times it's those patients that haven't had a pap smear in like 10, 20 mm-hmm. years and then come in with cancer. Okay. So if you come to your doctor regularly, HPV is HP, HPV-related cancers are so slowly developing that most of the time we will we'll catch it and we'll and, be able to take care of it. cervical cancer is almost always caused by HPV, correct? A lot of the cases are, mm-hmm. I mean, it's the biggest like, risk factor for developing um, cervical cancer is HPV. And not always. Yeah, not, not always. always. Nothing is always al- a medicine. Yeah, but almost always. Um, so, Dr. Gilbert, I know you're very passionate about educating people uh, about infertility. That's right. Uh, because of STDs. Does that apply to HPV as well? So, yes and no. Um, typically, when I think of the STDs that are that affect fertility, it's things like gonorrhea, chlamydia, um, which basically causes a bacterial infection that gets from your vagina to the cervix and then transcends up near the fallopian tubes and ovaries. And what that does is it causes a lot of scar tissue in the fallopian tubes, and it can prevent sperm from traveling and, and fertilizing an egg. Um, it can kind of close off that tube that needs to be open in order for that to happen, or it can affect the way a fertilized egg would travel down the fallopian tube and into the uterus. And when that happens, you can develop something called an ectopic pregnancy, which is a pregnancy inside the tube. Um, and that is, is terrible for a number of reasons. One of them is that it's associated with a, a very high uh, maternal mortality if it's caught later on. It, it can increase your risk of emergent surgery um, and, and increase your risk of it even happening again in the future. Um, With HPV, 
if you do have HPV, the way I can think about that it might affect a future pregnancy, maybe not necessarily fertility, is that if you continue to have things like LEAP procedures, which is something that we do, we shave off the cells of the cervix when we see um, super abnormal cells, then gradually over time, your cervix gets shorter and shorter. And that can actually increase your risk of something like preterm labor, uh, premature rupture of your membranes, and affect your, your current pregnancy. How common is gonorrhea and chlamydia as compared to HPV? So HPV is the, like we mentioned, the most common um, STI. And then if you're talking, that's a virus. And if you're talking about most common bacterial forms of STIs, that would be number one, chlamydia, followed by uh, uh, gonorrhea. And then trichomonas is also very common, but it's not a bacteria. It's a different kind of bug. So uh, all that to say is, Those two, chlamydia and gonorrhea, are very common. And one in 10 women that have, um, that are infected with those and that have these scarring issues, their fertility will also be affected. Oh, that's so sad. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is there anything that they can do? Yeah. So a lot of the times, often most times, these women don't have any symptoms. So if you keep up with your annuals um, and if you keep up with the recommended screening, that allows you to be tested for these on a regular basis, then we can catch these infections without them lingering on and causing increased scar tissue and increased Mm -hmm. problems for years and years and years. So just keeping up with your preventative care is really important. And people, this is is very striking as well, people can spread, in particular HPV, I'm not sure about the others, uh, the virus, even if they have no symptoms, and even if years have passed since they were first infected. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's one of like the ones that is kind of silent. You don't, you won't see it. You won't see it on anyone else. You won't really see it on yourself. So it's important to get your pap smears. And another thing is important to get the the vaccine we have for HPV, which is one of the only, the only STD that has any sort of vaccine to prevent it. It's recommended for both men and women up to, um, for women up to 46 years old, which is actually, um, something that most patients don't realize. And it helps your body kind of make its own immunity and fight against all different strains of HPV ones you have been exposed to and ones you haven't. Well, let's talk about that because I have talked to some parents who were very skeptical to have their children uh, vaccinated with the Gardasil vaccine. I was, I think, 26 when it came out. And at the time, that was the age recommendation. I think 26 was too old. Uh They were saying it won't really benefit you if you're 26 or older. I got it anyway. I don't mind sharing uh, because I thought, what if years from now they say it did help? And so Mm -hmm. I got, you know, I think it's a three dose vaccine. Mm -hmm. And what was it? Like five, 10 years later, they came out and they said, yes, uh, it actually, we now can expand the age range that uh, it is effective among, and it's until what, 40, 45, 45, 45. Okay. So what about all that group of people from that age range who didn't get it back then? Is it just as effective for them now as it would have been if they would have gotten it when they were 26? Mm -hmm. So ideally with the vaccine, you would hope to get it before you have been exposed to HPV. So before sexual activity would be the ideal time to get the vaccine, which is why they, um, pediatricians and everyone offer it to patients starting at nine years old, but it's not 
harmful or it's not, I wouldn't say I don't recommend it to patients being like, okay, you've been sexually active. I guess the vaccine is just useless. How I talk to patients about it is the vaccine, the Gardasil 9 has nine different strains of HPV that it helps um, your body fight um, like its own immune immunity to. And so you may have been exposed to two of them and it'll help your body fight against what you've already been exposed to and help your body fight against strains it maybe hasn't seen before. Um, so it's definitely recommended for people even after the onset of sexual activity and exposure to HPV. But is there a reason why you should get it when you're or get it for your child uh, when you're young when the child is younger if they're not going to be sexually active for quite some time? Just so you can your body at that point you're going to help them have immunity before they are ever exposed, whether it be in two years and 10 years from then, um, at least they have some immunity on board so that the first time they're exposed, they have the strongest immune response. Um, and then additionally, if you get the vaccine before age 15, you only need two doses as opposed to Oh, three. really? Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So let me be clear because we're talking about nine-year-olds. So you're yeah. saying if a nine-year-old gets the vaccine uh-huh. and that nine-year-old isn't sexually active until he or she is 18, because this is for boys and girls, right? Boys the and girls, are, 100%. So if, if, if the child isn't sexually active until, well, 18-year-old isn't even a child anymore, it's right. an adult. Uh, but it would be no more effective than if this child got the vaccine at 17 and started becoming sexually active at 18. Right. Having the immunity on board, it doesn't matter exactly the like timing as much. So whether it's five years in the past or a year in the past, it's still going to be effective either way. Okay. So maybe it's a good idea to talk to the children, right? Before, before you go through with the vaccine and explain, I mean, how do you feel about that? Do you counsel your patients on that? It's, it's a difficult topic because a lot of pa- parents, even my parents were, were a little like skeptical of it because they just think that, oh, it's, you only need the vaccine if you're going to have sex with a bunch of different people. And it's that stigma of like only people that have multiple sexual partners get STDs, which is absolutely not true. Um, and so, and they don't realize that it's not, it's not giving your child like permission. Like you have the vaccine now go have sex freely at nine years old. Like that's not what we're saying as your physician at all. Um, we are just trying to prevent any time in the future, if you were exposed to it, that you have all the immunity on board. Um, so it's kind of important to talk to parents and kind of educate them. It's it's not giving, we're not recommending sex, underage sex with children at all. It's more something that we just want your child to have the best chance of preventing genital warts and preventing cancer in the future. And if we can have a vaccine to prevent cancer, I don't see why any parent wouldn't want to do that for their child. Right. And, and surely the only way to definitely prevent it is not to have sex, but Correct. we're also trying to be realistic uh, mm-hmm. and the numbers don't support that, that, uh, that way of mm-hmm. prohibiting STDs. Right. Uh, what about you, Dr. Gilbert? Yeah, so absolutely. So barrier contraception, um, you know, just tagging along what she said that abstinence is not really realistic these days, um, is something that you can do in the form of condoms to prevent, um, to help prevent STDs. Okay. Can you catch an STD from kissing or any other sort of touching or any other way. There's been talk about toilet seats and <laughs> anything else that that is exposed to your private area other than actual intercourse. Yeah. So oral sex is a form of kissing, if you think about it. Um, and you can absolutely contract STDs that way. Even, um, you know, uh, direct mouth-to-mouth kissing um, if you have a break in the skin and blood is exposed, you can also encounter them that way as so well. So that is possible. Mm-hmm. Just mouth-to-mouth kissing, mm-hmm. you can contract an STD. How, yeah. how likely is that, do you think? Um, it depends what the STD is, um, and it depends on uh, the extent of the infection. For example, if you have 
Um, HSV2, which is the virus that causes genital herpes, and if you have that, that affects the mouth and you have an open sore and you kiss somebody else, then they're also going to likely contract that. But just to clarify, so talking about herpes, because herpes does all sorts of fun things. If you kiss someone and you get herpes from kissing them, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get genital herpes. You can. You can get herpes Ah, down below or on your face. There, no. there, there's two different types of herpes strains and you can get both of them in either place. Um, so it's all oh. just a big mix match. You can get herpes one or two on your face or down below. So you definitely like most of the time, if you're going to kiss someone and they have a lesion on their face, you're probably going to get it on your face. Not a hundred percent of the time, but you can get it down below. But then if that person takes their herpes on their face and kisses down below, likely you're going to get it down below. Does that make sense? Yes. That's, that's helpful. Or touches your, um, mouth and then touches down. below. Yeah. Any sort of herpes is, it doesn't take a whole lot to Mm -hmm. give each other herpes. And that's another one super, super common, like HPV. Is there a way to know which people with HPV will or could develop cancer or other health problems other than the time frame that you would have that dysplasia? Right. So people that, you know, don't have access to a lot of care, don't present to care early, higher chance, of course, of the HPV progressing to cancer. But other things that patients can kind of modify on their own um, is the biggest one is smoking. So tobacco use is an, the one of the biggest kind of risk factors for having persistent HPV infection that could then lead to cancer. So one of the biggest things we talk to patients about is not smoking. So if they do smoke to try to decrease it or stop altogether, because everyone's familiar with like smoking causing lung cancer and all sorts of other things, but it's also can, um, increase your chances of getting, um, cancer of your cervix. Um, and then infections like HIV can also weaken your immune system and make you more prone to have HPV that stays for a long time, doesn't go away. Your body doesn't clear it and then could lead to cancer. However, if patients are really compliant and really good about taking their antiretroviral medicines and their viral loads are very low, they can live with HIV and not contract these bad, bad forms of HPV that lead to cancer. So it's the poorly controlled HIV patients um, and patients that smoke that usually we see have the really, really aggressive cancers. What other types, Dr. Gilbert, of of STDs can lead to cancer? So other than HPV, um, that's really the one that we think of that affects the cervix and that causes cervical cancer. Of course, like Dr. Locklear mentioned, HIV in general will weaken your immune system, um, but it in itself does not cause cancer. Okay. So the Gardasil vaccine, the HPV vaccine is the only vaccine for any type of STD. Is that correct? Yes, ma'am. And you both promote it. Oh, yeah. a hundred percent. I could do a whole podcast on just <laughs> telling everyone to get Gardasil. It's she my could. favorite. <laughs> Are there any long-term potential side effects of having that vaccine? Not that it has been studied and that vaccine is not new. It's been around a long, long time. So the biggest side effect is it's annoying to get poked three times. That's about it. But long-term, it hasn't been shown to cause any sort of adverse outcomes. What are the other common STDs that you see? You mentioned gonorrhea, chlamydia, because we were talking about fertility. Of course, we've talked about HPV. And Dr. Locklear, you touched a little bit on uh, on uh, HIV. Uh, but what what are the other ones that we should really touch on, Dr. Gilbert? Yeah. So I, I don't think that we've talked about syphilis yet. And we it's, have given trichomonas no love. And trichomonas. Trichomonas being more common than syphilis. Um, a lot of our patients, I think, have trichomonas. That's yes, one that very we common. Com- like gonorrhea, what chlamydia, is trichomonas? trichomonas. Trichomonas is um, another infection of like the cervix, kind of mm-hmm. like gonorrhea and chlamydia. So another kind of thing that I guess patients don't always realize when we test you for 
um, STDs, we can do like a urine test or a swab of your cervix that tests for certain STDs and then blood work that does different STDs. So gonorrhea, chlamydia, trichomonas, those are all ones we do swabs or urine tests for. The blood test um, is more screening for like HIV, hepatitis, and syphilis. So there's not really a blood test for chlamydia per se. So your doctor, if you want all of the STDs, if you're like, test me for everything, it's going to be two types of tests, if that makes sense. And trichomonas is one of those ones that infects the cervix like gonorrhea and chlamydia. And I suppose that's really common for people if they have a new sexual partner to go into the doctor and say, test me for everything, mm-hmm. or it should be common if it's not. Yeah. Should be. Should be more common, I think, that than what it is. And I think that there is, in some ways, a stigma um, in coming to your doctor and saying, I have all of these partners, you know, test me. But I think that one thing I want to convey in this podcast is that if you have one partner, two partner, three partners, come see your OBGYN, let us know, and then we can easily test you. Seems like there would be more of a stigma in not getting tested. Right, exactly. And moving on to the to another partner, mm-hmm. uh, maybe in a new relationship and, and not having kind of been given the clear, mm-hmm. right? The all clear. Yeah. Um, certainly we'd be more... Um, polite thing to do. Right. right, right. <laughs> considerate. It would definitely be more considerate. Right. Um, if several STDs don't have symptoms, what are the most common symptoms that bring people to the doctor's office? And maybe that's some overlook. We talked about the warts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about the pap smear. What else would be a reason or what are the most common reasons they'll come? I get a lot of patients um, complaining of uh, large amounts of discharge, green, yellow, um, discharge is probably one of the most common complaints that we get in our clinic. And then one that patients may not really associate being from an STD is pain, pain with intercourse. Um, and lastly, also, um, spotting in between cycles or spotting after sex. So you mentioned a discharge, which is normal. How do you know what's not normal? Really difficult. Um, you can't always look at discharge and say, oh, yep, that one is an STD and this one isn't. But um, typically and generally speaking, you can have, you know, a frothy um, yellow tinge discharge. You can have a green discharge. Um, those I would consider more so abnormal. Anything um, irritating to normal discharge is not supposed to be irritating. It's not really supposed to be foul smelling either. And a lot of these women will complain of smell, foul smelling discharge. Doesn't mean 100% that's an STD, but we do see those sometimes hand in hand. What about if it looks the same? It's just you're having more of it. Could that be an indicator? It could. And again, discharge isn't anything that at the end of the day I hang my hat on because I've definitely been fooled. And in a normal appearing uh, discharge and vagina, you know, they come back with STDs. So So are some people more susceptible to contract STDs, Dr. Locklear, than others who are exposed to them in the same way? Maybe some sort of genetic disposition? Not necessarily genetics, I would say. I would just say kind of those immune compromised patients. So like cancer patients on chemo, people with HIV, um, diabetes can make your immune system a little bit lower, but not necessarily genetics. It's more kind of your sexual practices. Like, do you have sex with lots of partners and don't use condoms and don't often get tested or uh, those types of things? Controllable risk factors. Controllable risk factors, but not necessarily genetics. What percentage overall would you say of STDs can be cured and which percentage can be treated if you had to kind of write the large majority can be cured. So pretty much most everything can be cured. The ones that have no 
forever cure our HIV. Um, but with HIV being on, there's medicines to treat it and, um, it won't go away completely, but if you're the, we count how many, like how much of the virus you have in your body, you can get it basically to undetectable, which is basically zero. And when your viral load is undetectable with HIV, the chances of you passing it to someone is so, 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 so low. So basically zero, but not zero. Um, so HIV is one that you will have forever as well as herpes. Um, that's another one you will have forever. However, both of them have treatments. So you can treat the symptoms, you can treat, um, like how much the virus you have in your body kind of situation, but it's not a forever cure. Pretty much everything else can get cured. And wonder, the cool thing about herpes, cause I think there's a huge stigma against herpes and I want to just make women realize that it's not, it's not life ending. There's no definitive treatment. However, you can go on daily prophylaxis. You can take a daily medicine for herpes and it decreases the amount of virus that you shed so that you one will hardly ever to never have symptoms. And the chance of spreading it to a partner is very low. So if you do, have herpes in your life, get married or have a partner, a regular partner. And you're concerned about, um, passing it to a partner. You could go on daily prophylaxis mm -hmm. and the chance of spreading that is very, very low. So your life will not end with herpes. I promise. Ah, there's hope. <laughs> it, so before we, before we wrap up, I do want to touch on, uh, the prevention mm -hmm. and when people should get tested, how often should they get tested? Do you think? Because if you can have symptoms for a long time and not even know about it, it seems like you should get tested regularly. What would regularly mean? To me, regularly is like once a year, if you have, you know, the same partner, you're pretty sure that you're, you and your partner are monogamous. But if you have any new sexual partners, I, I would say get tested before every new sexual partner. Does that happen every time? No. But before you decide to have intercourse with a new partner, definitely get tested and make sure that you and your partner are um, both clean before you um, participate in any sort of sexual activity or after you have a new sexual partner before or after. But anyone new in your life? get tested. Mm -hmm. But it is possible to get an STD in a monogamous relationship. A hundred percent. So that's why we don't say, oh, you're married. We don't have to test you for STDs. We test everyone at least once a year, I would say. Most of the time, the recommendation is less than 25 needs to needs to needs to be screened um, just because usually they're having more sexual partners. But it doesn't mean that someone that's 45 and sexually active does not need to be tested. Everyone should be tested. And what about uh, types of condoms? Any, because that, that I would assume that that's one of the major prevention uh, ways to prevent STDs. Am I right in assuming mm -hmm. that? hundred yeah. percent. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like you should definitely wear a condom. Definitely, uh, definitely. And so is there a set type of condom you should look for? Does it matter? I think any barrier condom works. Right. Just use it. Please use it. That's all I say. Yes. <laughs> Find it, use it and use it well. The like, cost don't. doesn't matter. I know. Not that we found. Mm -mm. It's the Not people that are awareness. inconsistent using condoms. Sometimes they use it, sometimes yeah. don't. That's when you get like those patients are usually the ones that end up getting an infection. It's mm -hmm. not people that are really good about using a condom. We don't, I don't have a specific one I recommend to patients. No. And important to note that you have to wear the condom throughout the entire act of sex, not just, you know, in the beginning um, or the end, the entire time that the genitals touch, you should wear a condom. Well, we could keep, oh, anything. You, I was just going to say in oral sex too, you're not like we talked about if you, any sort mm -hmm. of oral sex. You can get like gonorrhea, chlamydia in your like pharynx, like mm -hmm. a sore throat from chlamydia. So to prevent that, ultimately, using a condom even during oral sex is something that you could do to prevent um, infections that way as well. But Well, thank you, you guys for being so open on this, about this podcast. I know it's an uncomfortable subject for so many people, but it's so important, and uh, we could we could talk about this probably once a week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you, Dr. Locklear and Dr. Gilbert. Yeah, thanks awesome. for having us. Yes, thanks for having us. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Unprivate Parts. 
Be sure to follow Women's Hospital on social media and follow us in your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. Thank you for listening.